thinking this morning about keeping up appearances, and there was a British show in the 1990s called Keeping Up Appearances. Anybody ever seen this show? Okay, great. So the main character is uh, Hyacinth Bucket, but she goes by Bouquet, and she is all about her image, right? Her, her whole shtick is she has social airs, right? And she wants everyone to think of her and be super impressed by her, and yet usually the reality doesn't measure up to the uh, appearance she's trying to give. If you don't know this show or haven't seen it before, um, I'm just going to give you a little taste of what um, her character is like. There's one thing I can't stand. It's snobbery and bonafishness. <laughs> People try to pretend they're superior. Makes it so much harder for those of us who really are. I hope that's a first-class stamp. I object to having second-class stamps thrust through my letterbox. When I turned on my tap this morning, it didn't look like my water. It's not as bright and sparkling as I'm accustomed to. It looks to me as if it's been used. <laughs> After all, it's only an accident of birth that I'm not someone important. <laughs> well, I am someone important. It's simply an accident of birth that I'm not even more important. <laughs> even aristocratic. <laughs> so in future, would you look like someone who enjoys doing his own gardening, but could afford a gardener if he wanted to? <laughs> I will not have you waving in dirty gardening gloves. They get dirty when you're gardening, Hansen. Can't you keep one pair for gardening and one pair for waving? <laughs> I quite understand that you lack the experience to realize that when the Lord wants you to visit houses of this caliber, He'll expect you to wear something more Christian in the way of socks. <laughs> okay, uh, so that show is hilarious. Uh, if, you, if you get a chance to watch it, I, I, I would. But what, what makes it hilarious is that in the, in the show, her, her desire to keep up appearances always comes off as com comical, right? Not necessarily the case in real life. Maybe you know some folks who are really obsessed with their image in real life. Sometimes that's comical. Sometimes it's, it's not. And, and as I read the story of Saul, especially this chapter where he is rejected as king over Israel, it seems to me that he is a man who is obsessed with keeping up appearances. And it's not comical at all in Saul's case, right? It's, it's really quite tragic. So we, we talked before about Saul, uh, how... He starts off as sort of just this guy that gets picked by God. From the beginning, you know, fear is an issue for him. He hides in the luggage when they call him to be king. And then he has this great shining moment where he saves Israel as the deliverer that they and God want him to be. And then last week we talked about how that fear comes out again, right? And he offers a sacrifice, usurps the role of the priest, doesn't wait for God. Um, but something has changed even from last week to this week about the character of Saul, that he's no longer just a man who is, is struggling with his fears. He's now a man who seems more invested in the appearance of faithfulness than in faithfulness, and the appearance of godliness than in godliness. Uh, and so I, I hope you noticed this, but there are a bunch of places this shows up in our story. Um, so 
Uh, we're told, for example, that he tries to appear that he respects God. Yeah, sure, I obeyed the command of God. I mean, I know I didn't do exactly what God said, but I, I did generally what he wanted me to do. And then when he's called out, well, yeah, but you realize the reason I didn't do exactly what he wanted me to do is because I want to bring these animals for worship. We're going to have a big party, right? It'll be a great fun. And I brought Agag as a trophy, but, um, but it, you know, I, this is all about being obedient to God, right? And then when he's called out, when, it, when it's clear that that's just an appearance he's trying to keep up, his first response is to say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I, I can see how that was a mistake. Um, it wasn't really my fault. I mean, they made me do it, but please forgive me and let's just get back to the way things used to be. And, and when the appearance of repentance isn't enough either, and Samuel says, no, you're going to lose the kingdom, he says, okay, all cards on the table. I'm less concerned about what God thinks about me and my kingship and more concerned about what the people think God thinks about me and my kingship. So I'm sorry I sinned, but, by the way, my wife says, never say I'm sorry, but, right? I'm, I'm sorry, but would you come back with me and honor me in the sight of the people around me and let them think you respect me still, that I still have your backing, all cards on the table. What I care about most is the appearance of your support, right? The appearance of godliness. Jesus warns us about this. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says um, that there will be a day when the kingdom of God comes, and on that day, some people will come to God and say, hey, I have had the appearance of godliness my whole life, right? Lord, did I not in your name cast out demons and heal the sick and do great wonders, and Jesus will say, away from me, I never knew you. You fooled everybody else. You never fooled me. So I want to think this morning about how we um, avoid being satisfied with the appearance of faith and strive instead for the substance of faith. How do we move past um, the desire? I think we all have a little bit to keep up appearances. Instead, um, saying we want to keep up a connection with Jesus our Savior. So I think we get some examples from, from Jesus' teaching with the Pharisees and from Saul that help us with this. Uh, the first thing I think we do if we want to avoid a faith that's just keeping up appearances is we have to value righteousness over recognition. To value righteousness over recognition. I don't know if you noticed in our story, but Saul was really into recognition right? He built a monument for himself, not for God, but for himself, not for the people that fought, right? A big statue of Saul. Uh, and, and then throughout the rest of the story, every time he's confronted with his wrongdoing, it's just about me, right? Me, me, me. Come back with me. Forgive me. Not once does he say, boy, now that you say that, I realize how my actions affected other people or affected or dishonored God or the name of God. No, it's just me, right? Maybe you know folks like this who, even when they're wrong, are still looking for recognition, right? Even when they're wrong, are still thinking about how their wrongness affected them. Pharisees are a people that love recognition over righteousness. This is Jesus' primary concern with them. Remember that Jesus is a Pharisee, right? In terms of theology, he's a Pharisee. His frustration with them isn't what they believe, but how they act that they care about important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, but are not generous to the poor, are not pursuing justice or the love of God. Uh, I think there is one central conceit 
Um, and, and this issue of recognition and righteousness that leads us to, to a life of keeping up appearances. And it is the idea that recognition, that, that being recognized for what we do right is the source of greatness, right? I'm important, I'm a big deal if I get recognized for being a big deal. And I think in the kingdom of God, it's the reverse. In the kingdom of God, um, greatness is about um, a life that points away from myself and to Christ and others. And so if recognition is about getting all the attention, righteousness is often about um, what the world doesn't see us doing. What the world doesn't see us doing. And it it often comes in in, in some small ways in our life. Uh, John Ortberg tells a story of a time where he pulled up into a grocery store and he opened his car door and he opened it a little too forcefully, ever done this? And he bumped into the car next to him with his car door. Uh, and he said um, afterwards, he looked at where his car door bumped into that car, and it was just the tiniest of scratches. It was almost decorative, right, a decorative little scrape that he made on their door. Um, but he felt, you know, boy, what should I do? Now, this was complicated by the fact that Ortberg at the time drove a 10-year-old Mazda, and the car that he um, decoratively scraped with his door um, was an Italian sports car. I won't tell you what it was called, but it rhymes with Atari, Okay. At that moment, Orbrick says, I knew that I could just drive away, right? Literally no one would ever know. They would have, there's no way to trace me. There's, there's no cameras in the, I could just drive away. But he said, uh, uh, and, uh, and he was tempted. Boy, I would have been tempted. Um, but he said, you know, I, I really felt like part of my life with Christ meant in those moments when no one's watching, I'm still supposed to do what Jesus wants me to do. So he says he wrote a note with his name and his phone number. He put it on the, the dash of that car, and then he ran away. Uh, he, he said, um, and the next day he got four phone calls from the gentleman who owned the Ferrari. The first call that same day, he said, thanks for leaving me the note. Just want you to know this car is like my baby. Right? I don't have kids, so like this car is my everything, and you just need to know that I, I can't handle any imperfections on it, so I'm going to take it to the dealership. We'll see what can be done. I'll let you know what it's going to cost, but I just really appreciate you being a man about it and telling me what was going on. The next day he calls and he says, uh, unfortunately, they couldn't buff out the scratch, and so they're going to have to replace the whole panel of the car. The next day he calls and he says, they don't have that panel in the United States, and so they're going to ship it here from Italy, um, but just stay tuned and I'll let you know what it's going to cost. The fourth day he calls back and he says, this whole thing has stressed me out so much, I've decided I'm just going to buy a new car. You don't owe me anything at all. Don't worry about it. Um, Thanks for being honest. Uh, And Ortberg said, beyond the immense sigh of relief, he had a question. So what are you going to do with the old car? (laughs) Point of that story, right, uh, is that righteousness is what we do when the world doesn't see. Righteousness is how you treat the people in your home, right? how you treat your spouse or your kids or your parents or your brother or your sister. Righteousness is what you do on your computer when nobody's watching. Righteousness is um, the way you treat people that no one else sees. Oh, by the way, this is so important. This is what Jesus says, right? Jesus says righteousness isn't just um, what you do when the world doesn't see, but what you do for whom the world doesn't see. Do you notice that? Jesus said, yeah, it's great that you're doing all these things, but what about the poor that you're neglecting? What about the justice you're not pursuing? Where in my life am I living for those the world doesn't see? Maybe even in ways that no one else gets to see. That's righteousness. And God calls us to righteousness, not recognition. Okay, so uh, 
if we want to avoid a life of keeping up appearances in our faith, we value righteousness over recognition. We also have to value reality over ritual. Reality over ritual. And, and, and here we get a really interesting moment. So um, Saul conquers the Amalekites, comes back, brings the cattle and the, the sheep and the goats and all these animals. He's going to offer them as a sacrifice to God. And, and we don't know for sure how wrong Saul knows he is, right? I'm sure Saul knows he's wrong a little bit. But how wrong does he know he is? I'm not sure. Maybe on some level he really thinks there's something good about this, right? But Samuel has this great response. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as an obedience to the voice of the Lord? Rebellion is no less a sin than divination and stubbornness like iniquity and idolatry. In other words, what Samuel says is God's not looking for sacrifice. He's looking for obedience. He's not looking for ritual. He's looking for reality. This is, in many ways, the primary complaint Jesus has with the Pharisees, right? That they are obsessed with ritual, but not with reality. They are so um, intentional about trying to, to appear faithful that not only do they give a tenth of their harvest and a tenth of their flock, they go into their gardens and they pull out their, like, their mint and their cumin and their uh, parsley, and they, they cut out a tenth of their parsley and give it to God. Jesus says, that's great. That's a great ritual. Um, but behind that ritual feels empty to me, right? I'm looking for the love of God in your hearts, and I'm just seeing you going through the motions. I think this is a challenge for us um, in our religious rituals, right? It's so easy for people, uh, uh, religious people to come to church and just go through the motions, right? Isn't it? Like, okay, now we stand up and we sing, and now we say these prayers, and now we sit down, and now we take a nap during Jim's talk, and now we get up and sing again, right? And we just kind of go through the motions. And I think about, what would Jesus be like in worship? I don't think Jesus would get anything out of the sermon. I think He already knows all the answers. But, but I think, what about the music? What about when we're singing? Would Jesus sit in the pew and say, boy, I don't know that I want to sing real loud because I don't have a great voice? Or boy, I want to sing really loud because I want everyone to hear what a great voice I have? Or would Jesus say, hey, behind the ritual of singing is the reality that in this moment, I'm with my family and I'm with my father and my father is amazing and I love him and he loves me and I literally can't help but sing. Right? I literally can't hold it in. I love being with God, and He is worthy of my praise. Right? I, I have an inclination that Jesus might be like the one you have to tug at His sleeve to get Him to sit down because He wants to do one more verse. Right? Um, not because He's into the system, but because He's into the reality behind it. I'm concerned um, that we can hide in our rituals and avoid our reality. Uh, it's not just something we do uh, in worship. We could do it in our entire lives. Um, Glennon Doyle is an author who had a TED Talk back in 2013, and she talked a little bit about how she hid um, in her rituals and what she calls her superhero cape um, and avoided the world as it really was for a large part of her life. I want to share part of her story. And I started to feel like a loser in a world that preferred superheroes. So I made my own capes and I tied them tight around me. My capes were pretending an addiction. But we all have our own superhero capes, don't we? 
perfectionism and overworking, snarkiness and apathy, they're all superhero capes. And our capes are what we put over our real selves so that our real tender selves don't have to be seen and can't be hurt. I binged and purged for the first time when I was eight, and I continued every single day for the next 18 years. <laughs> Seems normal to me, but you're surprised. Um, I, every single time that I got anxious or worried or angry, I thought something was wrong with me. And so I took that nervous energy to the kitchen and I stuffed it all down with food. And then I panicked and I purged. And after all of that, I was laid out on the bathroom floor and I was so exhausted and so numb that I never had to go back and deal with whatever it was that had made me uncomfortable in the first place. And that's what I wanted. I did not want to deal with the discomfort and messiness of being a human being. So when I was a senior, year, senior in high school, I finally decided to tell the truth in the real world. I walked into my guidance counselor's office and I said, actually, I'm not fine. Someone help me. And I was sent to a mental hospital. And in the mental hospital, for the first time in my life, I found myself in a world that made sense to me. In high school, we had to care about geometry when our hearts were breaking because we were just bullied in the hallway or no one would sit with us at lunch. And we had to care about ancient Rome when all we really wanted to do was learn how to make and keep a real friend. We had to act tough when we felt scared and we had to act confident when we felt really confused. Acting, pretending was a matter of survival. High school is kind of like the real world sometimes. But in the mental hospital, there was no pretending. The jig was up. I think there are all kinds of rituals that we do to hide ourselves from who we are and who the world is, ways that we try to keep up our appearances. Some of those are good rituals, right? Singing in church. Some of those are self-destructive rituals. But what God wants in all of that is for us to move beyond the form to the substance, for us to encounter some reality for Him. Christ's message for us is not about the superhero capes that protect us from the world. It's not about capes at all. It's about crosses. It's about our willingness to go with God through the most painful seasons of our life. And to say in the midst of them, yeah, this is really hard, but it's real and God's with me in it. And on the other side of this cross, I believe that God can work resurrection. That He can not only restore me to life, but, but to make my future better than my past ever was. Uh, and, and I believe that um, when, when we get caught up in a, a life of substance, some of those rituals can be really great ways to direct us to the reality of God. Some of those rituals need to die in us so that we can put down our capes and pick up our crosses. Uh, but as painful and messy and beautiful as our reality is, that's what Jesus wants from us. Jesus calls us to be real with Him today. Uh, so, Jesus calls us 
uh, uh, value righteousness over recognition and reality over ritual. Uh, and, and if we had a little more time, um, I would love to talk about how Jesus wants us to value His Word over our will. But, but just in a nutshell, we've got to talk about this Amalekite thing. Who's uncomfortable with the fact that God sent the Israelites to murder all the women and children of the Amalekites? Yeah, that's pretty tough. Uh, it, it deserves more of our time, um, but, but in a nutshell, there are a very few moments in Scripture where God directs the Israelites to be the executioners of His justice. And in those moments, um, they are called to do exactly what God calls them to do. There is no benefit to them in it. They're not going in as the conquering heroes. They're not going in to get more land or get more prop. They're going in to execute God's justice. And, and what Saul does that's so profoundly broken is he takes this moment which is supposed to be difficult but, but in some sense justice and he makes it a way to, to get a cash grab, right? To get a, a trophy king and, and to, to make himself wealthy and to make his people impressed with him. Right? He takes the clear command of God to execute justice and he perverts it into an act of mass murder and theft. And it all comes back to this idea that he's not willing to do what God tells him to do. Right? He's not willing to, to actually do, even in the hard things, something that is not about him. Uh, and, and so I believe one of the most critical things for us if we want to avoid a life of, of keeping up appearances of faith is that we have to know God's Word, right? We have to know His will for our lives, um, that partial obedience is the same as disobedience when it comes to these critical uh, life decisions that God calls us to make. Uh, and so Saul gets Samuel and he gets the story of Achan and Joshua and, Joshua and he gets the commandments of Moses. We get this whole message of Scripture, Right? And, and in it, um, we get to hear God's will for our lives, and His Word gets to trump our will. And if we want to avoid keeping up appearances in some level, we have to be knowing His Word. Um, we're going to start today, actually. We're going to start a, another series of books we're reading through, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, um, some of the letters of Paul. And you've been doing this with us this year. Um, we've been reading just a chapter a day. If you haven't been doing it, this is a great time to start. Um, there is something essential about knowing Christ's Word if we're claiming to follow Him. Uh, and so um, I, I believe this is where Saul goes most wrong, right, as he chooses his will over Christ's Word. At, at the end of this story, everybody's sad but Saul. You notice this? Samuel's sad and God is sad. Saul's fine. Because the biggest challenge with keeping up appearances is we can lie to everybody else and we can lie to ourselves too. We can fool ourselves that our lives are just like they're supposed to be. Um, but at this moment where Saul thinks he's got everybody fooled, we know that he's living without God, quite literally living without God. And I believe we have to make this choice too, right? We can choose uh, to keep up appearances, to try to look godly, try to look like our life is together, to try to fool everybody about who we are. We don't have to formally reject our faith or become atheists or commit horrible crimes. We can just devolve uh, into making our faith and our life a show everybody else watches about us. 
or Christ invites us to something different, a life rooted in God's Word, not our will, rooted in reality, not ritual, rooted in righteousness, not recognition. Which life do you choose? Thanks be to God. Amen.